If you have a Bible, turn to Genesis chapter 12. Um, I'm going to read two chapters in Genesis. That might seem like a lot of reading, and it is. So uh, the reason why is because I can't, I'm going to pull from all of this, and I can't really pull from it unless you know it. So I assume you've read Genesis 12 and 13. Um, but I, I do want to read it just for um, just to be just to be safe, so you guys know what, what I'm, I'm going to set some context for what I, uh, I'll be talking about today. So I will read these two chapters. You could uh, follow along in your Bibles. If you don't have a Bible, you could download an app on your phone. If you don't have a phone that does that, you're awesome. Okay. So if you're like flip phone or die, that's awesome. Okay. Um, <laughs> Verse 1. I'm just going to read this straight through. I'll try to not to mess up. Verse 1. Now, the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make, you a, I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and you, all the families of the earth, shall be blessed. So Abram went, as the Lord had told him. And Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran, and Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions, and they gathered, uh, and the, uh, they gathered the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of, of Morah. At that time, Canaanites were in the land. When the Lord had appeared to Abram and said, to your offspring I will give this land, so he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord, and Abram journeyed on, still going towards Negeb. Now there was a famine in that land. So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a beautiful woman in appearance. And these Egyptians, they'll see you and they'll say, this is his wife? And then they will kill me. But they'll let you live. So say you're my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, that my life may be spared for your sake. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw the woman was very beautiful. And the princess of Pharaoh saw her. They praised her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken to Pharaoh's house. For her sake, he dealt well with Abram. And he, and he had sheep and oxen and male donkeys and female servants and female, uh, male servants and female servants and female donkeys and camels. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, what is this that you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she's my sister? So I took her to be my wife. Now then, here's your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife all that he had. So Abram went from Egypt, and he, and he and his wife and all that he had, and Lot into Negeb. Now Abram was very rich in livestock and silver and gold, and he journeyed from Negeb as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he had made an altar at first. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. And Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling the land together, for their possessions were so great they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. And at that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. Then Abram said to Lot, Let there be no strife between you and me, and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we're kinsmen. 
It's not, it's not the whole land before you. Separate yourself from me. If you go to the left hand, then I will go to the right. Or if you go to the right hand, then I will go to the left. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zor. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities in the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. And the Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northwards and southwards and eastwards and westwards, for all the land that you see, I will give to you and your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring can also be counted. Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent um, and came and settled by the oaks of Mam, where, uh, which are at Hebron, and there he built an altar to the Lord. Let's attempt to get through this today. Let me pray, ask God for help. God, I pray that this morning um, that you would speak to us, God, and that we have all come from different places and have different situations that we're living in right now, different life stories that we all have, um, whether it's career or college, university, relationships, family, whatever we might be pressing in around us, I pray, God, that you would speak in the midst of our life right now. I can speak to their ears, only you can speak to their hearts. I pray, God, that all of us in here would have faith to hear. Even if we've come in here and we're a bit, we might even be a bit bitter towards you, maybe confused, or even angry. I ask God that you would speak. Please speak. I pray that you would build into this church faith, that what we learn from the story of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is that we can trust in the Lord God. Build our trust in you, God. I submit my mouth and my mind to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. We've been in the book of Genesis now for some time since September. We started in September, and we spent the first four months looking at chapters 1 through 11. Last year, we spent the, the, our, our whole, the entirety of our series, and even into this year, looking at chapters 1 through 11, which we said last week was uh, like a Terrence Malick approach to a prologue. Now, God is the ultimate storyteller, and he tells us opening scenes of primeval history a lot more vividly than even Terrence Malick does. He opens a scene up with creation, and it flashes of creation, and then fall, and we said that the, the story, the narrative actually moves very, very rapidly, very fast. I mean, it moves really fast from the beginning of time, or time as we know it, to Abraham, and it's only 11 chapters long from the beginning, and then in chapter 3, you're having, there's already cities, and there's already, already people populated, and there's all these questions that emerge, like, who are these people? Where are the cities come from? The earth just was created. How in the world is this narrative moving so fast? What we said last week is that the narrator here is giving us context to land on the central character, Abraham. So you have a creation and fall and then murder and then this whole wicked earth and the flood and the Tower of Babel and then it ends with the people scattered, everyone is confused, everyone has a different language and everyone is just gone. And then there's this tension that's been building in the narrative so far. The tension like, who will trust in God for good? If God created everything good in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, and it's all good, who will trust God to remain in the good? Who will actually believe in God? And time and time again, they keep disobeying God until they're all scattered and they speak a different language. 
The other thing that comes in is how will God redeem his people? How will God, as he promised Adam and Eve, how will God redeem the fall? How will God say, you know, your offspring, he will strike your heel, but he will crush your head. How will God do that? How will God redeem the people? They're all scattered and they all have different languages. How will God redeem this? And the answer comes when the narrative lands on the central character, Abraham. And God says, all families, all nations of the earth will be blessed through this person, this man. So the Tower of Babel, everyone is scattered. Everyone is thinking differently. Everyone, has, everyone is, is living in disunity. And God says, through this person, I will bring about unity. I will bring about my blessing. I will bless everyone through you. And all of this rapid context and all of this building tension leads to the character Abraham. And right when we meet this man in chapter 12, Abraham is faced with a choice. Abraham is faced with a decision. And I think this is a very important part in this story, this narrative, because I think like most of us in here are faced with decisions, difficult decisions, almost every week. You might face a decision about every single week that you think can change the course of your life. Like, if I choose this, my whole life would be, will, will change. If I choose this, what do I choose? You might be the pros and cons type of person, like makes lists. So it goes pros and cons, and here's a list. And whatever one, whatever one like outweighs the other one, that's where I'm going to go. Or you might be the path of least resistance. You're like, okay, what's the easiest thing right now? I can't take any more difficulty in my life. I'm going the path of least resistance. Or you might be the person who like assesses and then and then like conquers and overcomes things. You're like, I'm gonna, what's the most difficult decision right now? And everyone's gonna think I'm stupid, but I'm gonna take this because I'm gonna show the world that I'm awesome. And so you choose the most difficult thing. However you approach decisions, I think it's very important that we pay attention here. Because in this text, in our story that we read today, there are very important decisions laid before both Abraham and Lot. And when we approach chapter 12, when we get to chapter 12, what we're told is that Abraham was faced with the decision of leaving everything. God appears to Abraham. We don't really know how this is, but he showed himself to Abraham. He said, Abraham, leave everything. His name was Abram here. It's changed to Abraham, Sarai. It's changed to Sarah. Don't trip out on that, okay? It'll, it'll unfold, okay? So Abraham, God appears to Abraham in some way and says, I want you to leave everything, okay? Listen. Leave everything and follow me. I want you to follow me. I want you to leave it all. Now, to leave, and I don't think this really sinks in for us. We're like, oh, no big deal. I, we, I leave my family like, like I did, actually. That's why I'm here. I left them. It's no big deal. It was a huge deal then. To leave home and break ancestral bonds was to expect of ancient men almost the impossible. Leave everything you know. Leave your inheritance. He had all this inheritance stored up for him that would be his. And God said, leave all of your inheritance because I'm going to give you an inheritance. Leave all the protection of your family. I will be your protector. Leave your identity completely behind. I'm going to completely give you a brand new identity. Leave it and go. God asked Abraham almost the impossible. This is how it's framed. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you and I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. God told Abraham two things in there. Leave everything. He says, okay, I want you to leave everything. That's the first thing he told him. And then the second thing is, I will bless you. Leave everything and I will bless you. That's what he was told. Leave everything. God said, 
Three things and leave everything. Three things to leave behind. Leave your country, your kindred, your father's house. Leave your country, your kindred, your father's house. These three terms indicate that God knows the difficulties of these separations. God understands. The Bible is not naive. God knows what he's asking Abram to do. I want you to leave. I want to leave your country, your kindred, your father's house. I know, I know it's costly. Leave them. The Bible's not naive. The Bible says sacrifice is costly. Now, I want, I want to be completely honest here. You guys might fight me on this point, but listen. What, does, what has God done up to this point to Abraham's knowledge? What has God done up to this point to Abraham's knowledge? God says this, I want you to leave everything behind, everything, and I want you to follow me. Does Abraham go, oh yeah, you're the God who, does he do that? Can he do that? Oh yeah, you're the God who flooded the earth. What does, what does Abraham have to go on right here? At, right now, what we say is this. Israel, the, the, this is what's repeated over and over again from this point on. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, right? Isn't that repeated over and over again in the, in the, New, in the Old Testament? Have you ever heard that phrase? It's even repeated in the New Testament. The God, I serve the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I serve the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I serve the God of Israel. That's what they would say. Over and over, God is faithful. God is faithful. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is faithful. I was just even remembering when David went up against Goliath. And what did he say to Goliath? I mean, still, still David with a slingshot. Goes up to Goliath. He's like, you come at me with all of your giantness. I come at you in the name of the Lord God of Israel. I'm going to show you today that Israel's God is the living God. Like, he's coming against God with, like, uh, this reputation of the God of Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Up to this point, what is it right here? God says, I want you to leave. I'm God. Whoa, wait. What have you done? Can I see your resume real fast, okay? I need, could you just email that to me? Because I need to check that out. I need to check, you have, I need your references as well. Like, God has done, up to, up to Abraham's knowledge, nothing he goes, I want you to leave your country and I want you to follow me. And Abram goes, and Abram, Abram was a, a moon worshiper. He was an idolater. He left his, he leave his family and everything and he was like, follow me. And Abram did. You and I today can bank on the fact that God has been faithful over and over again. I can share with you stories from the Old Testament, the New Testament, church history, missionary stories. I can share with you biographies, personal testimonies, but Abraham had none of that. God said, would you follow me? I'm gonna lead you out, and I want you to leave everything behind. And there wasn't any down payment either. Remember, remember Moses kinda got a little down payment? Moses met God, uh, if you've read into the one-year Bible, uh, in the burning, burning bush. It was a bush that was burning that was not consumed, remember? And God's like, I want you to do this. And, Abraham, and Moses was like, um, God, I don't know if you know, I, I just don't want to talk really well. You tell me to go talk to people, I have a, I have a speech thing. And God's like, um, I made your mouth. Like, I know, how to, I know how to work it, okay? I know how to work your mouth. I made your mouth. And then Moses is still tripping out. I don't even know. He's like, okay, okay, grab your staff. Throw it down. It becomes a snake. And he sees it, like a little, a little bit of proof. I mean, a little bit of something. God's playing with them a little bit. Okay, I want, this is what I want you to do when you get there. God does none of that with Abraham. None of it. I want you to follow me. 
okay, God, could you just prove something to me? Like, turn my hand into something, or like, show up somewhere, or do something. None of that. I mean, the only thing he gets is this, look at the sand. Uh-huh. You're going to be like that. That's all he gets. The sand. Try to count the sand. I can't. Exactly. Like, that's it? I get nothing. The stars, count them, okay? You, that's, that's how it's going to be. It's going to be like that. I mean, he's getting not, not, nothing that you and I would be like, I need more proof. Abraham's just called by God to go, and he goes. He obeys. This is why, from this point on, the people of Israel in the New Testament, the ones that put their faith in Christ, are grafted in to this promise here. Here's someone that God just lands on and says, follow me, and he does. Abraham was told to go, to trust. And God said, I will give you a land. I will give you a son. I won't prove all that to you yet. You have to trust me. And now, the, the, the thing is this, and this is the, the trippiest thing about this part, um, is go to the land that I will show you. Abraham is not even given where he's going. He's like, I want you to go, okay, um, who are you? Okay, that, I'm, I'm, I'm God. Okay, okay, got that, I got that. Okay, so what about where I'm going? I won't tell you. I'm, I'm about to leave everything I know. Like, I'm going to leave my family. I'm going to leave my inheritance. I'm going to leave my land. I'm going to leave my protection. I'm going to let that go. Can I grab onto something? Just let me hold on. What can I, God's like, no, I'll show you when you go. Like, start going and I will show you. Abraham was told to go, and not any details were given. Just go. That's it. Leave. God said, it's like, it's like I'll show you on the way. It's like Abraham was going to let go of this, but he had nothing to grab onto, only the promises of God, nothing but the word of God. That's it. Have, have you ever felt that way? Like, I'm going to let go of this, but I don't have anything really to, to hold on. I'm gonna, it's like a complete faith move. And this was Abraham. Let me ask you a question. Are you, a, I know most of you guys probably are, are you a control freak? <laughs> just by your like smiles across the, like I know every single person who is, you just smile, you're like busted. That was, how did he know? Okay, listen, we have this tendency of like, we, to be obsessed with details. Most of us, not everyone. I know some people um, that are not like this, but most of us are obsessed with details. We care so much about how it's going to happen. You might be the visionary type or the, the planning type that's like, I need, to see, I need to see the roadmap. How do I get there? Step one, two, three, four. Okay, if I'm going to date this person, show me the road. Is this going to end in marriage? Okay, what's the next step? And how is it going to end? And how is it going to play out? You might be like, we're all like this to some degree. My wife is not at all like this. She's not a planner. She's like, let's just, why, why worry about something before you get to it? Let's just worry about it in the moment. And I'm like, no, I need to, I need to prepare my worry <laughs> before the worry hits. But when it comes to restaurants, she downloads the menu before we go to any restaurant and like studies the menu. So she's like, I need to know what I'm going up, I'm up against here. I need to know like how they cook things. I need to know everything. And I'm like, that's why they give menus away. Like when you get there, I mean, you just relax, choose what you're going to eat when you're eating. It's all a part of the dining experience. She's like, no, I need to know. I need to know what they dress their salads with. I need, she needs to know every little, we're all like this to some degree. We all want to know, okay, if I'm going to do this, give me the details. Can I tell you this? If you remember nothing but this, listen. 
God rarely gives you the details. God rarely, this, this might really bug you about God. Like of all the things about God, I like them, but except for this thing, okay? <laughs> Why doesn't he ever give me, he, he rarely gives you the details. He didn't give Abraham the details. And this is the theme over and over again to the people of God, and it's on the screen. Over and over again, this theme is repeated. Read it with this theme in mind, and tell me how many times this pops up. Go, and I will show you. Go, and I will show you. Well, God, when I, when I get before the people of God, what am I going to speak? Go, and I'll, and I'll show you. When you open your mouth, that's when you know what, what you're going to speak. Abraham goes on top of the mountain to, to, to sacrifice Isaac. How, how is this going to happen? Like, I know God's not going to kill my son. How is this going to happen? God's like, go, and I'll show you. Isaac's servant goes to find him a wife. God, how am I to know who it is that I'm choosing for Isaac as a bride? And God's like, go, and I will show you. Samuel, when he goes and anoints David as king, okay, you're going to go look for a king, and he's going to be in Jesse's house. How will I know? Go, and I will show you. This is repeated over and over and over again in Scripture. Go, and I will show you. God, no, I need to know, I need to know like three steps out. Can you give me those steps? God's like, go, and I will show you. Now, he might give you the details, but it's rare. Now you're asking, okay, when will God show me? Okay, I went. I'm out the door now, God. It's like, you'll know when the time is right. <laughs> like, we won't even control that. Okay, I'll go, but you'll show me, right? Okay. Okay, show me. <laughs> you will know on the way. I don't know when it'll happen. Go and God will show you. Pretty much everyone's favorite verse, every Christian's favorite verse is in Jeremiah chapter 29. This is like the verse you put on your refrigerator, okay? <laughs> um, you have on your mirror or something. When you feel bad about your life, you're like, this verse. <laughs> Jeremiah 29, 11. If it's not your favorite verse, it should be right now, okay? Write this down. This is one of my favorite chapters in the entire Bible. Listen. For I know the plans I have for you, have for you declare the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. And everybody's hearts are just warmed by that. Like, oh, man. Now, before you get, like, too intimate with this verse, you need to know the context of this verse. It was given to Jeremiah to give to the people of Israel who were exiled in Babylon. They were ripped, literally ripped from their home. Their temple was destroyed. Their city was ransacked by Babylon, by Nebuchadnezzar, taken from their home. Daniel was part of this, these people. Ezekiel was part, taken from their home, brought into Babylon, and forced to live there. Jeremiah was like one of the only few of the remnant that stayed in, in Jerusalem. And he wrote to the people in Babylon, oh, guys, I want you to know who have no homes right now, who are just taken from their, ripped from their homeland, who live in a foreign land, who feel like their God's abandoned them because their temple's destroyed. Let me tell you what God says. God says, I know the plans I have for you. Plans to give you a future, not to welfare, not for evil. The context is they're out of their land. Their family has been killed. You're like, what, wait. That makes, that verse doesn't make any sense. In the midst of chaos destruction, brokenness, God breaks in with this. I have a plan for you, and I know my plans for you. I'm just not just making this up on the fly. 
I know the plans that I have for you, and I know where I'm going to bring you. I know how this thing is going to end. I know how this story will end. We're like, okay, great. I trust. I know. I know that you know, God. Okay, God knows the plans. Okay, here's our next question. Can you tell me then the plans? If you know the plans, and we're cool, you and me, God, can you tell me the plans? God's like, okay, I'll tell you the plans. Next verse. Then you will call upon me, and you will come to me, and you will pray to me, and I will hear you, and you will seek me, and you will find me. When you seek me with all your heart, I will be found by you, declares the Lord. What are the plans? God. God's like, hey, I know the plans I have for you. You're like, great. Can I hear them? Yeah, seek me. Okay? And then what will I find? The plans? Yeah, me. You'll find me. Do you see it? God's like, okay, well, you want the plans? I know the plans. You want, you want them? Okay, seek me and I'll show you the plans. Seek God and you get God. And in the heart of God lie the plans. In a relationship with God lie the plans. In an intimate walk with God lie the plans. And what are they? I have no idea. Only God does. And he rarely tells people. He reveals on the way. And this is what God does. This is the nature of faith. This is why our faith is not in the plans. If, you, if, if you've ever been given a word of prophecy, I probably threw around that word too loose. Some of you guys are like, whoa, wait. Did he just jump to prophecy? If you've ever been given a word from God, this is why you must trust in God. This is why your object must be God. And how he'll work out what he's promised you. Not so much in the thing. Not so much in, the promise is God, always. We must keep our focus on God. This is what God says, this is what Abraham is learning here. God doesn't give us the details. He calls us out. I can tell you in complete honesty, when God called me out to faith, like, broke into my life and saved me. And I know it was God because I was reading the book of Job. And who gets saved through the book of Job? Like, no one does. I thought, I thought it was Job. That's why I started reading it. <laughs> and so I started reading, and God, God saved me. And I remember it. Um, I, did, I wouldn't come to understand what it really, under, what it really meant until, I, actually, there's more and more clarity to it the longer and longer I walk with God. He simply said, you can go your way and you will die. I mean, physical death, eventually, of course. But, like, I knew that the things that I love would just die. Everything I knew, like, everything I was of value, everything would just keep dying. Or you can follow me. And I remember as, as clear as I can remember, it was just, it was just foggy. <laughs> Guys, follow me. I'm like, well, what does that mean? I don't know. I had no idea. I knew it was just God. I knew that the road, I didn't know where it led. It was like a path that was just filled with fog. It was like, follow me. Follow me. I had no idea when I started following God where I would end up. No idea. I don't think anyone really does. I mean, we do ultimately, but in our life. When God calls us away from something or calls us to something. He always calls us away from something. It might be something physical. But it doesn't have to be. It's always something. In the book Screwtape Letters by C.S. Lewis, a dialogue, a letter exchange between a demon and a demon in training, so to speak. It says this. When God 
talks of them, speaking of the Christians, demons speaking of Christians, when God talks of them losing themselves, he means only abandoning the clamor of self-will. Once they have done that, he really gives them back all their personality and boasts that when they are wholly his, they will be more themselves than ever. This is what happens when we walk away, when we step away, when we when we take that step of faith, and you're like, well, if I, if I leave this, won't I lose myself? And, and what C.S. Lewis brilliantly writes here, and even in mere Christianity, you actually become more of who you are when you do that. Abraham became who he really was when he, when he obeyed God and followed God. But there's a problem here, and here's, the, here's all of our problems. It's my problem, it's your problem. Our problem is our mind. Our minds are our problem. Our mind gets in the way. Is that true or not? When you make a decision, does your mind not get in the way? That's probably the thing that gets in your way the most, your mind, overthinking. We make lists, we compare results, we compare decisions, and God never asks us to be mindless. God, I'm not saying here, hey guys, shut your mind off. Be mindless, make a dumb decision. No, God says to apply wisdom, apply knowledge. Okay, that takes our mind, but listen. The real problem with our minds is that we want to know with our minds what the outcome of our decision will be. That's the problem. We, we sit down and we try to make a decision and then in our minds we play out the outcome. That's the problem. Okay, if I marry this person, what will? If I choose this job, what will? And that's when our minds need to stop and say this, I don't know the outcome. And this is where our hearts must trust in faith. This is what I believe God has called me to do. What is that gonna lead to? I have only God knows. I don't know. I'm going to trust. Abraham was told by God, follow me. And follow me in faith, and Abraham did. God sometimes asks people to leave one situation so that he might bring them into another better situation. God might sometimes give us far more than we left behind. Sometimes. Not all the time. Sometimes is the key word. What happened when Abraham obeyed and went and followed God? What happened? Trouble. The second thing that God promised Abraham was, I will bless you. And when you read chapters 12 and 13, you go, oh, really? You're really going to bless him? When Abraham went into the land that God had said he was going to promise him, when he entered the land, the land was occupied. His wife was barren, and he was supposed to have a great nation. And then this land that was supposed to be fruitful and abundant and a blessing, was, there was a famine in the land. How ironic is that? I'm going to lead you. Okay, I'm following. Famine. Wait a second. <laughs> and then he goes into Egypt, and then he chickens out. He's like, okay, Sarah, you're hot. That's not a line, okay? Like, you're my wife. I have some lines, but that's not a line. You are cute, and they will kill me because you're hotness, okay? So listen, this is what we're going to do. You're my sister, which is kind of a half-truth. You're my sister. Okay, that's how we're playing this thing out. So we'll go in, and, and then that's this kind of, they go in, she's taken immediately, and this is where chapter 12 ends. No land. The matriarch is in Pharaoh's harem. There's no land, no family, nothing looks remotely like a blessing at all. See, sometimes we think, okay, I'm going to follow God, and then I'm going to be so blessed. Yeah, you will, but what, your blessing looks a lot different than what God means by blessing. When you're like, I'm going to be so blessed, 
Was this a bad decision of Abraham to follow God? It was not a bad decision. Whenever we follow God, we have this proclivity to worry so much about our comfort. Our comfort isn't the goal. Jim Elliott, that famous missionary, died uh, ministering to the Aka Indians. In his journals, he wrote this famous, very famous quote that everyone knows. When they recovered his journals, he had this quote in there. He said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Now, the whole story behind Jim Elliott was that his wife, Elizabeth Elliott, and Rachel Saint, who was the wife of another missionary who would die on the same day in the same time, ministering to the Aka Indians. They didn't know that when them two got together, they started to pray for the Aka Indians. They never knew that the answer to those prayers would be answered through the sacrifice of their husbands' lives. Because the Aka Indians, once they murdered these missionaries, would later on come to know Jesus. Elizabeth Elliot and Rachel Slane had no idea when they started praying for the Aka Indians that God would answer their prayer to the sacrifice of their own husbands. Now, some of you guys are thinking, whoa, 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 wait. Are you saying I could die? Is that what you're saying? Like, I follow God and I could die. Yes, that's what I'm saying. (laughs) We might care too much about our comfort, too much about our pleasure, too much about our life when we start thinking like that. I know it's a a costly sacrifice to follow God. It is. The answer is I I really don't know. Only God knows. But God has a way of setting a scene that brings about restoration and renewal and redemption. And the reason why I say that is because you might be faced, you might be in a decision right now that you made a year ago. And you're thinking, that was the dumbest decision I've ever made. And my response to you is, how do you know that? How do you know that God is not just setting up a scene right now to bring about restoration, renewal, and redemption? I know that God is not working in the situation right now to fulfill his promise. And you're like, when? When will it happen? When? I have no idea. My wife and I were talking about this last night, and we're just talking about how good God has been to us. And, and then she made this comment, I hope that we're not 100 years old before we can have kids. And it's true. I'm like, I hope not either, but maybe. I don't know. I have no idea how it's going to play out. I have no idea how our lives are going to, but do you see, our, our, our object isn't in the, in the things. It's in God. He will fulfill his promise. He will fulfill his word. I have no idea how it's going to play out. She might be in a decision right now. You're like, I, if I only had this, or if I only had, if I didn't make this decision, listen, follow God, hear God right now. God might be setting up a scene. But here's what we have to avoid doing. There is a warning here as well. When we make decisions, we have to make sure that we make decisions based on sight. Not, not on sight, sorry. Not on sight. <laughs> In chapter 13, Lot makes a decision. Abraham and Lot, they have a ton of land. I mean, there's not enough land, and they have a ton of cattle and a ton of stuff. And, and, Lot, and Abraham was like, Lot, we have to separate. We've got we to stop fighting. We read that. You guys remember this. We've got to stop fighting. Okay, you go this way. If you go this way, I go this way. If you go that way, I go this way. Like, you go, you choose the land that you want to choose. And the narrator's very, um, uh, puts a lot of emphasis on how Lot made his decision. 
Notice this in verse 10. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere like the garden of the Lord. Okay, the, the narrator's writing this in here. You have to understand, it says immediately Lot lifted up his eyes. How is he making his decision? His sight. He lifted up his eyes. He saw the best place to prosper. If I go there, I'm going to have a lot more stuff. My cattle will grow. I'll get more rich. I'm making a decision there. He based it on sight. And it says that it was well watered like the garden of the Lord. This is supposed to awaken what happened in the garden. Eve saw in the garden the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and it awakened her desire. Both Lot and Eve, and this is the, what the narrator's trying to do here, both things appealed to their senses. Everything else was forgotten. They both saw with their eyes, like, I want that. He made a decision based on his eyes. And then also it says this, just in case you don't think that's true. Last sentence, so Lot chose for himself the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. When Adam and Eve were removed from the garden, where did they go? East of Eden. As the narrative moves east, it's further and further and further away from God. Where did Lot go? He went east. This is the first juxtaposition of walking by faith and not by sight. As Paul would later say in 2 Corinthians, for we are those who walk by faith and not by sight. We have to make decisions based on faith. We have to make decisions not based on the object of, uh, uh, or just on faith, on saying, oh, I believe and therefore I'm gonna go and do, but the object of the faith being God, trusting in the Lord, trusting that God is gonna work it out, trusting that God is in our mess, even if it is messy, that God is in our mess, that God will lead us in wisdom, and we can't. We have to stop making decisions by our eyes, Stop doing this when it comes to your career decisions. Stop. Make a decision. Take all the, 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 the career decisions in. Take it all in, but then ultimately don't make a decision based on sight. Make your decision that you submit everything you see to God. Stop making your spouse decision based on sight. You know how many people you rule out as a spouse because they don't look right? I mean, are you kidding me? They won't look like that in five years. Or 20 years. There's so many times that we do this. We're like, decisions based on sight. Stop doing this. Let's be people who have this inward peace that God, that God will lead us. That I can, I can actually make a decision and go, it might not have looked like the best one. But this is what God's word says. This is what it says. This is what I trust in. Now, I know there's danger in all what, what I'm saying. You can think of a million ways to do this, and it could be really ugly and horrible. So talk to Tark afterwards. <laughs> so what should we do? What we, should, what, what we must do is not just take this faith versus sight thing, but also consider the God side of the equation rather than just the Abraham or the Lot side of the equation. What's the God side of the equation? 
And this is what we learn about God, and this is where I'll end. This is what we learn about God. Romans 8.31. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? And then it says this. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? This is what God compares his promise to. He said this, I was willing, in order to restore a relationship between you and us and God, in order to restore that relationship back, in order to reclaim what was lost in Eden, in order to reclaim that relationship with God, in order to do that, I was, able, I was willing to give up my own son. If I gave up my own son, what will I not give up? What will I not give up for you? To bring you into where I have you, to fulfill my promises to you, what will I not do? Now, before you take this selfishly and go, well, I have not seen it in the last two weeks. <laughs> Trust in God. When things seem dim, when you're like in Egypt, there's, no, there's a famine in the land, and your wife's in, in Pharaoh's harem, like, I'm going to trust that God's going to work this out. God has a way of even undoing mistakes in Genesis. Undoing your mistakes. This is what God does. And so we can trust him as our redeemer. We can place our faith. So if, if your faith had just been shaken, bruised, beat up, restore it back in God and say, God, I repent. I turn from like this sort of questioning of of not trusting in you because I don't think things are working out the way I would have thought. Your plans are way above my plans. And you see things that I don't see. I know that if you gave your only son for me, what would you hold back? Let's pray. Thank you, God, for your kindness and your love and your grace, God. I know today we can say we, we believe in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God has been faithful there. He's faithful. But Lord, even if we don't know these stories, even if we have no clue about how you were faithful, I pray that we put our hope in you. I know that faith and obedience are these two-sided, two sides of the coin. They hang in tension. They hang in balance. And so I pray that this church would obey you that we would hear you, God. Please keep, keep us from hearing, keep this church from hearing the voice of the liar, the voice of Satan, that will lie and deceive. I pray that we would hear the voice of truth, God. I pray that you would give us ears to hear your voice when you call. And we would recognize your voice, God. I pray if anyone here right now needs to hear from you, there's a decision that needs to be made, a really big one. I pray they would submit it to you. A prayer for living in the midst of a decision we think is just really horrible. And God said he'd do something he hasn't yet. I pray Jeremiah 29, 11, over this church that you know the plans you have and they're a good plan. And you might not show us the details, but would you give us yourself, Lord? Would you give us that relationship with you? You are the plan, God. I'm not trying to be pithy. I'm not trying to be clever. That's truth. So would you minister that to our hearts, God? Minister to us right now during worship. In Jesus' name, amen.